All right. Now that we understand what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, we are ready to look at the specifics of how he does it. That is what he actually says. So just to recap, because it was a long and winding road for two weeks to get here, what is Jesus doing? What is, we talked about uh, all these different perspectives on how you could understand what Jesus is saying about himself and what he's saying about the law. And what was our conclusion? We, we saw from the text itself that the text actually tells us how to read it, what Jesus is doing, and how do we, how do we summarize that? What is it that Jesus is saying? And I go backwards and teach two weeks all over again. Jesus is telling them what they already said, what they already said, what the law already said, and what they already knew, right? Well, he's clarifying what the Pharisees are teaching, too. That's right. So he's not adding to the law. He's actually answering the question, what is the law? What did the law always say? And the particular approach he's taking to this clarification is a contrast And that's why sometimes people uh, get confused, some of these interpretations, because there's absolutely a contrast there. And the question is, what is the contrast between? And some of these views say, well, the contrast is between the Old Testament and the New, or the law of Moses and the law of Jesus. The contrast is between Jesus and the Old Testament law. Say, no, 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 none of that is right. What the contrast is between are... The, the law is the law of the kingdom, which is why he's going to talk about kingdom disciples, what the law always said, Old Testament and continuing, and then these kind of anti-kingdom disciples, which are the Pharisees, or they represent anti-kingdom disciples, because they've twisted the law. They've twisted the Old Testament law into something that they can actually keep. And now they tell other people, if you keep the law the way we keep the law, then you're okay. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Actually, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, not just you behave better than even them, but your concept, understanding, your criteria for righteousness has to exceed theirs, or you will never inherit the kingdom. Because they could follow every one of their laws perfectly, and they would still not inherit the kingdom. Because their law is a lowered standard. So this is what uh, Jesus says and leads us up to. So by showing what the law really demanded in contrast to the law of the Pharisees that was pretty doable... Jesus shows that we can't possibly fulfill the law, that we need him to fulfill it for us. And once he has fulfilled it, which he will do, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. What will happen when he fulfills the law? None of it will pass away. His disciples will be able to live under that law, to live as kingdom disciples. So when we talk about the... uh, the structure, the organization of the Sermon on the Mount, we start with, if you look at the beginning of Matthew 5, you've got uh, verses 1 and 2, the introduction that Jesus is going to start preaching. And then what's the first thing that Jesus does? Verses 3 and following. Blessed. Right, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the. And Jesus is not saying, if you act like this, you're going to get that. 
Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is the blessing of kingdom discipleship. This is what it's like to be in the kingdom. You are meek, and you do, therefore, inherit the earth. You are this other way, and you do inherit the such and such. What Jesus is actually doing is dispensing covenant blessings. He looks out on the audience, and he sees two groups of people. He sees kingdom disciples, and he sees anti-kingdom disciples. And this whole sermon is going to be about the difference between the kingdom and the anti-kingdom, and it starts with blessing for the kingdom disciples. It sets the stage with this. Then, verses 13, uh, 13 through probably 16? Yeah. 13 through 16, he talks about the visibility of kingdom disciples. You will be able to see this contrast that Jesus is about to tell you about, the contrast between these two, kingdom and anti-kingdom. You'll be able to see that contrast if you look for it. If you start paying attention, you'll be able to tell the difference between kingdom disciples and anti-kingdom disciples. How or why will you be able to tell? They let their, they're the salt of the earth. They're different. They have a light that shines. They're different. They're visible. And now we get into this direct contrast. All right, I'm going to show you these two. You be the judge of which one is actually righteousness and which one is pretend righteousness. Who's got uh, 5, 17 through 20? I do. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of the of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, uh, because he's Jesus and he knows what's going on, (laughs) as he stands up as the new Moses, he doesn't start with the law, do this and you shall live. He starts with the blessings. Because he alone has the authority to dispense the covenant blessings, right? And now he's going to tell you those blessings, who are they for? They're for the kingdom disciples. How will you know kingdom disciples? They're the light of the world. They're the salt of the earth, right? And the Pharisees say, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. We decide who's the kingdom disciples around here. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's do a compare and contrast for a minute. So now everything that's going to follow for a little while is compare and contrast. You guys, look at what I'm saying is righteousness and look at what the Pharisees are saying is righteousness and we'll see what real righteousness is. And by the way, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you got no chance, no part of this kingdom. That's the whole setup for these contrasts. So there's no way in light of that setup that what Jesus is doing is saying the Old Testament was this one thing, but now I'm going to make it different, or I'm going to make it more, I'm going to add to it. The whole point of this sermon is that the Pharisees have already changed what it always said. They've lowered the bar. And we talked last week about the irony of when we think about Pharisees, when we think about legalists and that term legalist, we always think about them being too nitpicky, too persnickety, too, too much law. But Jesus' critique of the Pharisees is not too much law. It's too little law because the law is all wrong. Too little righteousness because the righteousness is all wrong. 
you've got to exceed theirs. And now he's going to give you some very concrete, specific examples. This is not an exhaustive list of everything they got wrong. He'll talk in other places about other things that they got wrong. But this is a, uh, a sampling of moral laws that the Pharisees have gotten all wrong. And we do these contrasts, all right? Now let's start with the first one, murder and anger. Who's got 5, 21 to 26? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. All right. Uh, Jesus starts by citing from the Old Testament, right? He's citing from the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But he adds, because remember, he doesn't say it is written. He says, you've heard that it was said. So he's not talking about the absolute inerrant word of God as it's written. He's talking about what the teachers are teaching. You have heard that it was said. And here, he'll be very explicit. He'll include the extra details. As we move through this, he'll start to drop those extra details off because he thinks you've got the idea by then. You understand that this is, that when he repeats, you've heard that it was said. You understand he's not talking about verse level accuracy. He's talking about what they're teaching. So you've got the commandment, you shall not murder. And then you've got this interpretive addition here uh, in 21. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So we read that initially and we think, yeah, that makes sense. Somebody who murders will be liable to the judgment. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the problem is what they mean by that. And what they mean by that becomes clear in Jesus' contrast. Because what they mean is it's only the one who murders who is liable to this particular judgment. The only way you violated you shall not murder the only way that you are liable to the judgment under this command is if you actually kill somebody that you're not supposed to kill. And Jesus says, nope, the law, the sixth commandment itself, thou shalt not murder, actually judges and therefore condemns not just the one who does murder, but the one who wants to or wishes he could. And that's what Jesus adds here is you guys are saying that this law only condemns the one who physically kills. And what I'm telling you is this law has always condemned the person who wants to or wishes they could. And then he really expands on wants to or wishes they could in ways that make it uh, very difficult for us. Because hate, okay, we get that, right? You, you shouldn't hate people. But the words that are used here... Jesus brings in kind of a, a contempt. That's the insult part. The malice. The I wish you didn't exist. Or at the very least, you didn't exist in my life. 
that attitude towards someone. Uh, and Jesus says the exact same law that condemns you when you physically kill someone, that law condemns you when you do this, when you have this malice, this contempt, this hate. They bring exactly the same condemnation. Why? Because love of neighbor and love of enemy has always been the foundation of the sixth commandment. Jesus will tell us later that love of neighbor is the foundation of the entire second tablet of the law. Every one of those are just really good ways to love your neighbor, which is the, the, the greatest the commandment that's like unto the greatest, right? Uh, who's got Leviticus 19, 17, and 18? shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Thank you. Wait, wait, I told you to read the Old Testament. <laughs> oh, that's right, you did. So this is not a new thing for the New Testament. This is the way the Old Testament has approached loving neighbor, loving enemies, not just not killing people, but not wishing those people weren't here or alive or in your life, or, right? That's, that's the concept here. Anger that rises to this unforgiving, this holding on to grudges. When you hold on to a grudge, you, maybe you deny this, but when we hold on to grudges, if, if you follow that path to its logical conclusion, you would wish that person out of existence. And that's exactly what Jesus says here, is the sixth commandment condemns you, not just if you kill them, not just if you would kill them like, well, if I could get away with murder, I would. Most of us wouldn't even do that. But the thought of I prefer they didn't exist, or at least didn't exist in my life, that is condemned by the Sixth Commandment. That level of anger, malice, hate, contempt. And whether you mask it with ridicule and laughter and insults, God sees it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It doesn't have to be angry voice. It can be mocking voice. And it's the same condition of the heart. Questions about murder and anger. What if you're in a what if situation? What if it's your pastor? What if you've attempted reconciliation and it's not like there's no way to fix it and right. you can't just like let it go? So it's like what do you do in that situation? So the first part you said is true. Not everything can be reconciled. Yeah. The second part you said is not true. Okay. You said you can't just let it go. Yeah. The Sixth Commandment condemns you. Okay. That, that's the answer. You have to be able to release them to God. And this is, this is a very hard concept for us because when people damage us, and I'll talk about this a little bit in the sermon, but when people damage us, what we think is what they need most is to be reconciled to us because we were harmed. They did their sin and their evil against us. And we're not wrong to say they should be reconciled to us. But if they won't, 
they could still inherit the kingdom of heaven and never be reconciled to us. But they cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven and never be reconciled to God. So part of releasing people from the evil they've done against us is this recognition that even if you and I got right, the bigger issue is that if you and God don't get right, this is eternal. This is your soul. So I, I am then able to release that of, can you forgive somebody who doesn't apologize to you? This is a big debate in the counseling and theological world. Is it even possible to forgive someone who never apologizes? The answer is yes. It's a, it's, it's a different kind of forgiveness that doesn't involve reconciliation. But it's a release. Okay. Wendy? I was just curious about war. Killing? Yeah. Yeah, so that's the, the commandment is the sense of murder rather than just all types of killing because the commandment doesn't even uh, personal self-defense, the Bible justifies. Capital punishment, the Bible justifies. I will say the Bible justifies lawful wars, just wars, wars that have a beginning and an end and a noble purpose and a... So all that, the Bible says, there are types of killing that are not murder. Good question. Karen? So somewhere along the way the law in people's minds got muddled to think, oh, I didn't kill someone so I haven't broken the law. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. Yeah. But like, back in Moses' day, did they understand that the thoughts and the heart mattered? Like, is the Leviticus passage we just read, so if they didn't understand it, it wasn't because God didn't tell them. It was because they didn't listen. And we'll read more of those. There's a, a, a Save that thought for later, and there's one that most of us uh, don't even know exists in the Old Testament. And I could stand up here and read you the chapter, and you would call me a liar and say that's not in the Bible. So we'll, well, the leaders weren't we'll teaching it. So then the people... I mean, the, the people follow what the leaders Yeah, do. Israel had a lot of bad kings and a lot yeah. of bad priests. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was always there. It was always there. It's always the heart. All right, let's do another one. Let's do adultery and lust. Who's got 5, 27, and 28? You have heard that it was said, but you shall not commit adultery. One more. One more. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with So again, Jesus does the same thing as in the last one. He cites the Old Testament. He cites the Ten Commandments. This time he doesn't include the words of the interpretive edition because he just did this for you. He's, he's shown you the template. And so the commandment is you shall not commit adultery. And as you can imagine, what the interpret what the interpretive Addition, what the Pharisees were teaching and living and checking off was the only way that that law, the seventh commandment, condemns you is, the phys- is a physical act. If your body doesn't do something unlawful with somebody else's body, this law does not condemn you, just as with murder. And Jesus says, nope, you missed it. That same law condemns the one who wishes they could. The same law. Not, oh yeah, there's also another Old Testament law that prohibits lust. What Jesus says is, no, no, no. All of this, and this is the thing about the law for us. 
We People think about Old Testament law and there's like, oh, there's 982 billion laws. No, 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 no. There's two laws. Jesus tells you there's two laws. And because we struggle to understand the breadth and complexity of the two, he gives us ten as this kind of insight into what the two mean. And then because we struggle with the breadth and the complexity of the ten, he gives us 856,000 of which these are examples. But he's telling you it's the same law. It's the same law that condemns you. And so the one who thinks that they're not judged and condemned by the seventh commandment because there was no physical body with another physical body, he says, nope, that is wrong. Um, And then he gives an indication of how serious this is because we we think, all right, yeah, yeah. Uh, lust is a sin. Holding grudges is a sin, but it ain't adultery. It ain't murder, right? I mean, if I got to pick between the two, one's better than the other. All right, who's got 29 and 30? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I will not go into uh, detail. I don't want to be uh, unnecessarily vulgar, or but look at that very carefully. Look at the context in which Jesus is saying, "Cut off your right hand." That is not an accident. And yet now you do counseling with people struggling with the sin of lust, and they won't even cut off their internet connection. That sounds insane. They won't even cut off their HBO subscription. That sounds insane. And Jesus says, gouge out your eye. If this sin has got hold of you, cut off your hand. Because it is better to go through life without hands than to to live under the condemnation of this sin. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying here. It's that serious. And we said, I can't tell you the number of times that I have done, uh, this was especially when I was doing campus ministry for a little while, um, and this was the issue. And you would say things like, you just got to not have a computer in your room. And it was like, you may as well have said that they should go become a monk and live in a cave, right? Because that's so extreme. That's just ridiculous. What does Jesus say? Poke out your eye! This is a big, big deal. This is the example that um, I told Karen a minute ago where we, the Old Testament has always been about the heart. So Ezekiel 23, which I'm not going to read. I'm going to spare you all the embarrassment of hearing your pastor read that. But make a note and go home this afternoon and read Ezekiel 23. And what you're going to see is a story of two sisters. And one of these sisters, and one of these sisters Uh, The text emphasizes the physical sexual activity in her life as being sinful. And it is very graphic in its detail. And then it tells you about the other sister and the sinful sexual activity in her life. It emphasizes visual, not physical, visual. She had drawings, right? And what it says of these two sisters is they're the same. Their sin is the same. 
The word it uses to describe them, which is a very impolite word for people that this is their sin, it says it's the same. Um, this is not a new thing. It says they're the same in their defilement. So again, whether it's murder or the anger, the contempt, the, the grudge holding that makes us wish we could, whether it's adultery or just the lustful thoughts that make us wish we could, the defilement's the same. The same law condemns the same way. Uh, all right, divorce. Who's got Matthew 5, 31 and 32? Me. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immortality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right. This is not a direct quotation from the Old Testament because, again, it doesn't say it is written. It says, this is what you've heard. This is a rabbinic extrapolation of Deuteronomy 24. So this is when the rabbis had read Deuteronomy 24, and this is the way they were applying the law. And the way they'd applied the law, surprise, surprise, if we get to decide what the law means, what are we going to do with the law? It's going to fit what we do pretty nicely, isn't it? Right? If I got to write the Ten Commandments of Paul, I would be a perfect lawkeeper, you guys. A perfect lawkeeper. And what they had done with divorce was extrapolated Deuteronomy 24 to make it fit their purposes. And their purposes were this. Um, somewhat related to the sin we talked about previously, they vastly abused divorce. They would want to be married to someone other than who they were married to. And the Old Testament makes that very complicated. Very complicated to get a biblically lawful divorce. There has to actually be uh, uh, irreconcilable... One of them has to prove to be an unbeliever, essentially. Right? That, that's what allows for biblical divorce, is one spouse proves themselves to be an unbeliever. And so a covenant that was entered to between believers, turns out there was deception. And one of them is not a believer. You can put a lot of nuance on that. I'm not getting into the whole divorce right now. But that's the basic category. And what the Pharisees had said was, well, that, that's too hard. What we would prefer is that uh, Deuteronomy 24 talks about these the paperwork of divorce. And what we would prefer is that if you've got your papers in order, it doesn't matter why you're getting a divorce. And so what the Pharisees were allowing was, and you can imagine how this benefited mostly their friends, the well-connected, the important people, was if you wanted to get a divorce and marry somebody else, just get your paperwork right. And we'll approve the divorce because your paperwork's right. That's this certificate of divorce thing. And so the certificate and not the reason, not the marriage, had become their focus. And Jesus says, the focus is all wrong. The issue of divorce is not one of paperwork. It's not one of certificates. It's one of covenant. Does a covenant still exist? Or who has broken the covenant? And what Jesus is saying is, look, just because you get your paperwork in order, you're still the covenant breaker. And so anything you do after this, and that's why you got to be careful. Remember how I talked about the Sermon on the Mount 
Some of these texts are the ones that end up being the most abused because people don't understand what's happening here. And so a lot of wrong teaching about divorce and remarriage comes from this text because, well, Jesus said that if you, you know, marry a divorced woman, it's adultery. Period. Now, listen to the context. If you are getting divorced because you want a divorce and what you think this is about is paperwork and not covenant, once you've done that, no matter what you do next with paperwork, it's sin. It's all sin. <laughs> all of it. Because they're saying, look, I would prefer to commit adultery with this woman, but I know I can't do that. So what I'm going to do is divorce my wife and marry this woman. That's really what they're doing here. And Jesus says, "You really? You think the paperwork solves this problem? This is not a paperwork problem, you guys. This is a covenant problem. Um, so if they wanted to use divorce as a tool to get off the hook for sexual immorality Jesus the law doesn't do that at all now you got multiple laws that condemn you right and that's what uh, that one's about so unless the divorce itself is righteous and their biblical divorce is an act of righteousness I know that's a controversial statement but uh, we handle that in a Q&A one day if you want um, unless your divorce is Righteous, nothing that follows will be. Just it can't work that way. All right, oaths and vows. Who's got Matthew five thirty three to thirty seven? Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, "You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn." But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, this one's very hard to understand if you don't know the context. But let's we'll give the prize of the day if somebody can tell me how this was being abused. What specifically is Jesus correcting here in the Pharisees' behavior? Because you read it just in a plain reading, and it seems like it says... Don't take oaths. Don't take vows. Well, that's not right because the Old Testament commands you to take oaths and vows all over the place. Paul swears with oaths and vows in all of his letters. The, the point is not that oaths and vows are the problem. Jesus is correcting something very specific and narrow here. Does anybody know what that is? Well, it seems like they were giving themselves a loophole. If they made a promise to someone, they could go back and say, oh, no, I didn't actually take an oath here. Very close. So that's real. We'll give her the prize anyway because it's very close. What they were doing was they weren't saying I didn't take an oath because they were taking an oath. They didn't take an oath by the Lord. I swear on my grandmother's grave is not swearing to God, is it? So when you break it, eh, it's just grandma's grave, right? What they were doing was swearing on the temple, swearing on Jerusalem. Swearing on the throne of David, all these other things that Jesus mentions, they found a loophole, which was that, look, we're not going to break an oath that we've made in the name of the Lord. So we're just going to make our oath in the name of other things, and then we could break those. That's what they're doing. So they would swear on the heavens. They would swear on anything but God himself. And then they would say, look, we didn't break the command about don't uh, break oaths that you've made under the Lord, because we broke an oath made under a fig tree. <laughs> That's really what they were doing. And so once again, Jesus says, look, ah, 
the same law that you think you've escaped out from underneath, that law condemns you. That law condemns you. So whatever you swear under, whatever you make your oath by, it's the oath that means something. And that, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? That doesn't mean don't ever swear or take an oath. We take oaths and vows all the time, you guys. It means when you take an oath, don't get so caught up in the mechanics that you're not thinking about whether you intend to keep this vow. What does it mean, do not take an oath by your head? It was one of the things they were swearing by, whether it's their own head or their family name. I don't I don't know what that would have meant in their context. Because then he talks about like their hair cutting off your head. These are all the things that they were, no. Nah, these were all the things they were swearing by. So just so they didn't have to say, I swear to God. And it's funny, I like, I'm using that language because we all did that in the playground. As kids, we all thought, I, I found an out, right? I found an out. I made an oath, but I didn't swear to God. I sweared by chickens, or I had my fingers crossed behind my back, or the, right? And what Jesus is saying is, look, it's funny to think about grown-ups doing this. These grown-up religious teacher Pharisees were essentially looking at one another and saying, Megan, I'm going to buy... worth of eggs from your farm and I will pay you a fair market rate. That's what grown-ups were doing. And then they'd say, well, because I have my fingers crossed, I don't have to keep it. That's what's happening. It seems very similar to their idea of marriage. It's, yeah. Yeah. Get the the paperwork in order. You know, it's the whole letter of the law, spirit of the law thing. It's a hard thing for us because we... We want to be law keepers, but we want to be pedantic. (laughs) And we want to say, well, you did not act on lead with character. We use the example of uh, uh, mom and dad bake a tray of cookies and they leave the cookies in the kitchen to cool. And Nathan goes in the kitchen and nobody's looking and he picks up two cookies and he starts double fist his cookies, right? And Daphne calls in from the other room, Nathan, are you in there eating a cookie? And Nathan looks and goes, no, Mom, I'm not eating a cookie. Right? Huh? No, no. The law condemns you. The law condemns you. And we all know when we're doing this. We all know when we're doing it. We try to pretend like, oh, I didn't realize you didn't say, you know. know? Fast walking versus running, right? (laughs) It's still not walking, you guys. (laughs) Grown-ups do it too, though. And that's what he's condemning here. Because they got them what they wanted. The reason we make oaths and vows is because the other person's going to give us something. It's going to be a quid pro quo. And that person would keep up their end of the deal, and then it would come for me to pay up, and I'd say, ah, the weather changed. But you swore. I swore on my hair. Yeah, uh, why, why if it doesn't mean anything? Because they got what they wanted out of it. If I say, Lauren, if you give me $10, I'll give you some coffee. But you're, you never intend. No, but I got your ten dollars. People are eternally hopeful. <laughs> yeah. It's like lawlessness. I mean, it's free for all. <laughs> yes, yes, it's lawlessness, which is the anti-kingdom disciple part. All right, retaliation. Who's got Matthew five thirty-eight to forty-two? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Remember what I said about the Sermon on the Mount being filled with passages that people who don't understand what Jesus is doing then misapply and abuse? Does this fit into that category? Right? Because, whoa, Jesus says somebody slaps you, you offer him the cheek, and you, Jesus says we should be doormats. Or at the very least, we should be pacifists. Yeah, let's talk about the context. What is Jesus doing here? Does the Old Testament say eye for an eye? Absolutely it says it. In what context does the Old Testament say eye for an eye? In a judicial context. Do you know how we say eye for an eye in an American judicial context? The Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment is eye for an eye. Cruel and unusual punishment. We say colloquially, let the punishment fit the crime. That's what eye for an eye says in the Old Testament, is punishments should be proportional to the crime itself. Our legal system has totally abandoned this. We don't have this at all today. Um, But it was a critical component of Old Testament justice (laughs) was that the punishment would fit the crime. Uh, What the Pharisees were doing was taking eye for an eye in a judicial context and applying it to a personal context. And in a personal context, what it means is, well, vengeance is the Lord's unless he doesn't do it, and then it's mine. Right? That's a personal context, is you did this to me, so I'm going to do this other thing to you, and that's justice. No, it's not. That's vengeance. That's not what the Old Testament ever Allows. This is for governments. We seek that kind of justice. The question is, when the system fails us and we don't get that justice, what do we do next? And what the Pharisees said was, you go get it. You make that kind of justice. That's what a lot of the world today seems to believe, is that when the system fails you, you have to go get the justice yourself. And what Christianity says is, no, no, no. We pursue justice. The system exists to make justice. And we do everything that we can lawfully do to pursue justice. But when the system fails, what do we do then? And what Jesus says here is, it's better to be wronged. In fact, it's better to be doubly wronged. You've already been wronged. It would be better for you when somebody comes and steals your wallet. It is better to voluntarily give them your watch and your coat as well than it is for you to have the sin in your mind of there will be no justice here, so I have to take it into my own hands. That is intense. Again, context matters a lot. The the principles of self-defense are not abandoned. The preservation of life is not abandoned. This is not a... Um, this is a very blunt instrument when Jesus says this. He's not saying take this verse and apply it indiscriminately in every situation. He's saying there's a condition of the heart issue here, which is what this whole list has been about, condition of the heart. And if your heart says, I get justice no matter what, it'd be better for you to lose everything. It'd be better for you to get slapped on both cheeks. If that is what your heart says to being slapped in one. 
this will be made right, whether God makes it right or not, whether the system makes it right or not. Um, Jesus says it's better to be wronged. It's better to give up more, to suffer more injustice, um, rather than us think that it's actually justice we're getting when we take it into our own hands and apply eye for an eye on a, on a vindictive personal level. You can't pursue justice by means of injustice. That, that's the reality here. It's better to be wronged than to think that you're pursuing justice by injustice. That is, is justice in your own hand? Is that vengeance? Mm-hmm. Which the Lord specifically reserves for himself. And the, and the Lord, get, he doesn't just reserve it for himself and say, so there's nothing humans can do about it. He reserves it for himself and he creates the civil government as the maintainer of justice. And he gives the civil government the authority to charge with crimes and to have punishments that are appropriate even up to death. Romans 13, right? The government has the power of the sword when that, in a justice context, is eye for an eye. Is the punishment fitting the crime? But you don't have that. If your life is not in imminent danger, you can't take a life. You got to trust the system, knowing and that's people. Modern people think they're we are so much smarter than the past. We're so awakened. I'll use that word. Everyone's always known the system could fail. Whether the system fails more today than it did before, I think you have a hard time going back to the 19th century and telling people the system worked well for everybody then. The system has always been subject to failure because we're humans and humans fail. And it's not, oh, now because we have a broke system, we don't have to live within it. We've always had to live within <clears throat> a broken system. Somebody's hand. Nathan? Um, doesn't when, um, when you do take revenge on someone, sometimes doesn't it go where they do it back to you and then you just have this endless cycle? That's what it would be. And that's why it's not justice. If you pursue justice by injustice, you can't mix justice plus injustice and get justice. There's injustice in the mix. And then they should respond with injustice. And it's just this never-ending cycle. Daphne? Um, you keep bringing up the word justice and I'm just um, at the end of the passage where he, talk, he starts talking about give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you um, I just want to want you to correct me if I'm wrong. it seems like he's he's correcting them from both ends where they would want to actively do what do what they want to do as far as if someone sins against me if someone but as soon as they saw someone in need they would say oh that's the Lord did that to them I'm not not in my hands. Right. So then they would... Right. <laughs> they would see no need to correct injustice when other people were victims of injustice. Okay. But they could retaliate personally to correct yeah. their own okay. injustice. That makes, that, yeah. I mean, isn't that, like, when we want to correct our own injustice, that's anger. I call that Tuesday. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, I mean, a lot of that, like, your heart, it goes back to verse 21 you know, about being angry. It's, and so it's like creating, it's sin upon sin. Yeah, and it's pride. I deserve right. justice. Yeah. Regardless of what other people deserve, we could all agree that I deserve justice, right? So then I'm going to go get it. 
I agree. Shit, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. why you belong here. All right, last one. Love your enemies. He's got Matthew 5, 43, 48. Uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is quite a contrast from the personal vengeance, eye for an eye approach that the Pharisees were just reprimanded for, isn't it? Um, but to be fair, that's only a New Testament epic, right? There are not Old Testament verses that say things like this about loving. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Uh, Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, man, loving your neighbor as yourself again. That's a bummer. Proverbs 25, 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. That's your enemy, right? Now, granted, the next part of that is, in doing so, you heap coals upon their head. God may use that as their own judgment that they receive kindness from their enemy. But it still tells you to do it. It tells you to do it in both Testaments. This is what the law has always been. This is the real standard because this is how kingdom disciples live. This is what it means to be in the kingdom, is to be under this law. Therefore, what are the two takeaways? Okay, now we have the law clearly before us. We know exactly what is commanded by this law. What are our takeaways? How you, how you doing on keeping it? Not happening, right? Not happening. The Pharisees had convinced themselves that they were righteous by the things they were doing. And Jesus says, kingdom disciples are not righteous through keeping of the law because you, you can't. You cannot perfectly keep this law. That's why I have come to fulfill the law, not to cast it aside. The law has to be kept, and I came to be the one who keeps it. The second takeaway is, this is how kingdom disciples do live. Not perfectly, because we're not trying to be justified by it, but it is how we live. And now the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be, what does that look like in religious activity? What does that look like as you go out into the world? What does it look like to be a kingdom disciple? And how will the Sermon on the Mount end after all of this? It'll end with these eschatological warnings. Look, if you are a kingdom disciple, here's how that ends. It's good. And if you're not, it's bad. And sadly, the door is narrow fewer those who find it. Why? That's a hard way to live. It's not a hard way to live because the law is so hard. It's a hard way to live because humility is hard. Recognizing that self-righteousness is not going to get me there. That's what's so difficult. That's what makes this path so difficult is you can't relax the standard like the Pharisees did. That's not an option. So you actually have to admit I can't be justified by this law. I can be justified by a law that says the seventh commandment only condemns me if I physically commit adultery, but I can't be justified by a law that says I'm condemned if I even wanted to. I, I can be justified by a law that says I'm only condemned if I physically kill somebody, but I can't be justified by a law that says I'm condemned if I wanted to. I can't be justified by this law. That's the hardest part of Christianity. 
That's why people reject it. It's because Jesus says this very plainly, and they say, mm, I think I'll relax the standard instead, because I'm pretty good. <laughs> That's what the Pharisees thought, too. 